thank you uh, everyone for being here on another busy day in term. Um, thanks very much for having me, everybody from the Public International Law Discussion Group that I've met uh, so far and those that I haven't met. Um, in the next 40 or maybe 44 or so minutes, I hope to sketch and suggest ways of addressing key challenges to the prohibition of torture and other cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment, uh, and, and give you a flavor of some areas of contention uh, and, and um, argumentation in my research. I just want to start by uh, registering how delighted I am to have come here from the land of opportunity that is Birmingham, home of several recent Conservative Party conferences in which my type has been described as an activist, left-wing human rights lawyer. <laughs> um, I suppose my status as such also establishes that I come to this discussion group with a commitment to at least some fundamental tenets of human rights law, notably a commitment to the absolute prohibition of torture and other cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment. I should say that sometimes I will shorten cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment to ill treatment without wanting to gloss over the nuances just to save time. And I should explicitly register that human rights law is my turf, and a lot of my arguments and perspectives are within the domain of human rights law, at least primarily. And a fair amount of my research in this area originated and evolved uh, out of my doctoral research on Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which provides that no one shall be subjected to torture or inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. And for that sin uh, uh, of having done that doctoral research in Cambridge, I hope you will forgive me. Um, as Sajinta said, um, I should register that I'm also serving as special advisor to the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture and Other Ill Treatment, uh, but that is not a hat I'm wearing today for this talk. The following ruminations in no way represent the views of the rapporteur or anyone other than me, except, of course, when I refer to them specifically. Uh, in what follows, I propose to say a few words about the torture prohibition's character and the significance of the specification of the wrongs themselves, that is of torture and other cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment, and to consider and unpack some of the key challenges to the prohibition today and how they may be addressed. You may take the last bullet point, what is to be done, the case for redistribution, to signify what we typically understand by redistribution, but also to refer to an adjustment or recalibration in focus, at least for those of us committed to the prohibition. Throughout this talk, my exposition and my discussion are selective and not comprehensive, partly to reflect my particular interests and preoccupations and areas of concern, um, and partly to ensure I finish in time for questions and for you to get on with your day. We understand the absolute prohibition of torture and other ill treatment to be a fundamental norm of the international legal order. And the thematic report that was just presented uh, by the torture rapporteur to the UN General Assembly on Monday reflects on the achievements and challenges for the prohibition 70 years since it was enshrined in unequivocal terms in Article 5 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. No one shall be subjected to torture or to cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment was the uh, text of Article 5. The rapporteur's thematic report observes that the prohibition is enshrined in a number of key instruments, but is also considered to be a norm of use cogens, and that a wealth of normative standards and institutional mechanisms have emerged to give effect to the prohibition. The UN Convention Against Torture is prominent among the relevant standards, alongside a range of other international and regional legal instruments, 
as well as soft laws such as the revised Nelson Mandela rules. From the rapporteur's mandate itself to the Committee Against Torture and the Subcommittee on Prevention of Torture, a range of oversight bodies have been instituted on the international level to monitor compliance with the prohibition. And the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture, OPCAT, requires states to establish a national preventive mechanism towards strengthening protection against torture and ill treatment domestically. Moreover, the worldwide movement to end torture and ill treatment and to provide support to victims of such ill treatment has been formative to the growth of a number of human rights NGOs and is marked today by a broad and diverse civil society base. The rapporteur's report celebrates this mobilization around the prohibition, as does much of civil society. And yet, and we're getting to some challenges early on, among various items of contention, the absolute character of the prohibition of torture has been questioned, not just in moral terms, but as a matter of and within human rights law. Asking the question, is the prohibition against torture <coughs> and other cruel and human or degrading treatment or punishment absolute in international human rights law, Stephen Greer has claimed that the notion that the prohibition is absolute is essentially a conceptually untenable proposition at international human rights law. My position, on the other hand, is that the prohibition is absolute in international human rights law. The essence of the absolute character of the prohibition is its non-displaceability. As concerns the prohibition of torture and other cruel and human or degrading treatment or punishment in international human rights law, what this non-displaceability entails is that torture or other ill treatment by the state is conclusively unlawful. And to take the example of Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights, the absolute character of the stipulation against torture or ill treatment that it contains involves that it contains no inbuilt qualification of the type that you would find in respect of a qualified right, such as freedom of expression, which can be interfered with insofar as necessary in a democratic society in the pursuit of a legitimate aim. It's also non-derogable in the context of emergency or war. And finally, it protects everyone unconditionally, irrespective of the pleasantness or unpalatability of their character or conduct. But Stephen Greer suggests that this cannot be. His main argument against this is, in brief, that the prohibition encounters a conflict of rights in which the duty on the state to refrain from torture or other ill treatment cannot possibly or not rightly win the day. The scenario to which Greer ties this argument is the well-known Gethkin case. The facts of the case can be summed up briefly as follows. Mr. Gefkin kidnapped a 10-year-old boy, Jakob von Metzler, and demanded substantial ransom money from the boy's parents. Unbeknownst to the authorities at the time of his capture, Gefkin had killed Jakob and disposed of his body. The police officers involved, thinking that the boy may still be alive and facing potentially life-endangering conditions and all sorts of suffering in an unknown location, threatened Gefkin that they would torture him hoping that he would reveal Jakob's whereabouts. At this point, Gethkin confessed to the killing, and he was ultimately convicted after pleading guilty in trial. But he claimed that his right under Article 3 had been violated, among other things. And the European Court of Human Rights, in its judgment, 
at the Grand Chamber level reiterated that Article 3 uh, enshrines an absolute right and found that the threats of torture had inflicted grave psychological suffering on Mr. Gefkin and had amounted to inhuman treatment. This was in breach of Article 3, therefore conclusively unlawful. Stephen Greer strongly disagrees with the Grand Chamber's finding. He proposes that there was a conflict of rights on the facts of Gefkin, in which he argues Jacob's rights straightforwardly outweigh Gefkin's rights. But this attempt to weigh up Gefkin's and Jacob's rights obscures the legal issues. To understand the argument in legal terms, it is instructive to think of it in terms of negative and positive obligations. Gefkin's right not to be subjected to torture or ill treatment correlates in international human rights law with the state's negative obligation not to torture or ill treat. This is what the prohibition of torture <coughs> and ill treatment is chiefly about. On the other hand, Jacob's right not to be subjected to torture or ill treatment is not about the state's negative obligation. Rather, Jacob's right in this context correlates with the state's positive duties to take action to protect Jacob from being killed or being subjected to ill treatment. Yet positive duties are duties to take reasonable measures, which are rightly governed by the bounds of possibility and legality. In this scenario, positive duties would demand a whole range of action by state bodies to save Jacob, but they would not demand tortural treatment. A duty to take reasonable measures cannot sensibly be read as a duty to torture or ill-treat, and if Jacob's parents were to make such an argument in a court of law, I do not think that they would be successful. But this goes to a broader point about our right as human rights law not to be subjected to torture or ill-treatment. This right does not and cannot entail a guarantee that no one will ever be ill-treated by anyone within the state's jurisdiction. And it does not entail strict liability on organs of the state in respect of anyone ever being ill-treated by anyone else within the state's jurisdiction. My right not to be ill-treated entitles me to reasonable measures by state authorities to protect me from such ill-treatment that might include robust laws against sexual violence, for example. But there are good reasons why I am not entitled to a 24-hour personal bodyguard. And such reasonable measures are rightly to be delimited in a way which respects the bounds of possibility and legality, including the prohibition of torture and ill-treatment. Now, to argue this point is not to dismiss the significance of positive obligations, which I think are vital tools towards strengthening and centering effective protection in human rights law. What this stance towards positive obligation seeks to highlight is that we need to look for rights-respecting ways of protecting people from harms captured by human rights law. It seems to me that the ticking bomb scenario and its Gafgen case variation especially demonstrate that all too many, or maybe one too many of us, I think it's all too many of us, are all too ready to push for a reading of positive obligations that compels rights infringements. Whereas, it also seems to me that considerably fewer people seem to be pushing for a reading that compels substantial resource mobilization and other broadly unpopular or politically unprofitable rights-respecting measures that could be significantly more effective in protecting people from ill-treatment. To give examples of such measures in broad terms, getting rid of immigration detention, 
improving funding and training for law enforcement and prison officials, as well as improving their numbers, reopening and funding more shelters for persons who find themselves in vulnerable situations. These are more effective ways of protecting people from torture and ill treatment than carving out a window for torture in exceptional circumstances. And these are the kinds of issues that I think we need to be discussing more in the vein of recalibrating or adjusting the focus. One of Greer's comebacks is that if Gefkin had been a hostage taker and had been shot by police as a necessary measure to save Jacob as a hostage, then his shooting, though it would cause substantial suffering, would not be considered to be in violation of the prohibition of torture or ill treatment. And he finds that this is an instance of justified ill treatment, which contradicts the absolute prohibition. But shooting the hostage taker is not justified cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment, and is not thereby an exception to the absolute prohibition. Rather, I would suggest, it is not cruel, inhuman, or degrading to use necessary and proportionate force against a hostage taker. And that is because it is not the use of force or the infliction of pain or suffering per se that render an act cruel, inhuman, degrading, or torturous. But it is only certain wrongful inflictions of such pain or suffering that may be cruel, inhuman, degrading, or torturous. Broadly, a variation of this loaded point I've just made pushes Stephen Greer to the argument that the demands of a standard such as that no one shall be subjected to torture or to cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment are effectively a matter of unbridled choice. Right, so the demands of the standard are effectively a matter of unbridled choice and that through the exercise of such unbridled choice, any given norm applier can build qualifications into the standards interpretation and application which would amount to legalizing certain instances of torture or cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment. Of course, the interpretation of the prohibition of torture and other ill treatment is a site of uncertainty and contestation. But the proper interpretation of the wrongs at issue is not anything goes. This interpretation has to be conducted, in my view, in good faith, and it has to employ reasoning which is based on a principled account of the wrongs at issue, not extraneous reasoning which effectively displaces the prohibition rather than properly interpret it. Within these parameters, there is meaningful discussion to be had about how the shooting of a hostage taker in the arm might not be cruel, inhuman, degrading, or torturous, while the shooting of a handcuffed terrorist suspect in the arm to make them suffer, to extract information from them, might be torturous or uh, cruel, inhuman, or degrading. And it is very much worth our while, I think, to engage in earnest in discussions about precisely what amounts to the wrongs of torture and other cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment. I don't propose to take up this challenge comprehensively, but in taking this challenge up briefly, it is worth turning to the wrong that we might consider to be at the center of the prohibition, and that is torture. 
In terms of illuminating the wrong of torture, Jeanne Marie's writings are particularly salient and powerful because he had tragically experienced torture before he theorized it. And Jeanne Marie described the wrong of torture as the apotheosis of Nazism, as a microcosm of totalitarianism, where the perpetrator wants to realize total sovereignty over his fellow man with control of the other scream of pain and death, with masterhood over flesh and spirit, life and death. And this microcosm of totalitarianism in Jeanne Marie's view negates another, another's personhood by seeking to nullify their world, or at least attempts to do so. And in this act, there is a rupture of all relational bonds that shape and are shaped by our mutual humanity. It's an inversion of the social world, Jean-Marie said, in which we can live only if we grant our fellow man life, ease their suffering, bridle the desire of our ego to expand. Torture, paradigmatically, involves an attempt, an intentional attempt, to break somebody within someone's control. And this is done through the infliction of suffering which is intended to be debilitating in some sort of way. The wrongfulness of torture, I think, lies in its orchestrated or systematic denial of the equal and elevated moral status of another person and the concomitant respect their humanity demands. The dehumanization it involves is a negation of deontic humanity which demands that we not treat each other as objects or animals. I don't know if you recall the infamous Abu Ghraib image that I included in the cover of my presentation, but if you can recall it, you may recall the figure on the far right of the picture. Far right is a, an interesting term in this context. So there is a figure on the far right of the picture that is looking nonchalantly at their cameras. And often we see this, um, this photo without observing that person on the right. I think that exemplifies the rupture, the rupture in respect for our mutual humanity, that figure on the right uh, and, the, and the chasm between that figure and the person who is um, uh, being tortured. And so there is something related that Jeanne Marie and numerous others writing on the phenomenon and the wrong of torture have highlighted. And that is that it lies on a continuum of othering, which might culminate in this kind of rupture of torture and similar practices. But this othering also finds expression in starkly or subtly dehumanizing discourses and practices and structures. So as Patrick Lenta highlights in relation to torture practices by the US, especially post 9-11, these were underpinned by a stark othering of the enemy. He says, once the identity of those that the United States designates as its enemies has been constructed as a wholly negative, uncivilized other, torture will appear to the US soldiers who inflicted on Iraqis as morally unobjectionable and even heroic. In 2016, before the elections, in suggesting that he'd bring back a hell of a lot worse than waterboarding, Donald Trump described prospective victims of such practices as these animals over in the Middle East. 
And as Darius Rajali has highlighted in tracing the continuum of torture across democracies since ancient times, people who are deemed lesser in society learn the contours of their more limited citizenship through the experience and the mark of torture. He says, whether one can go here or there without fear of being beaten, whether one can travel in one's car without being pulled over or electrified, these are experiences constitutive of citizenship. So torture, in Rajali's view, operates to remind lesser citizens of who they are and where they belong. That torture and other cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment strike at a fundamental respect for our mutual humanity is illuminated further, I think, at the fringes, or what we might perceive to be the fringes of the prohibition. The sort of ill treatment that may not be as starkly debilitating as what comes to mind first when we think of torture, but which are nonetheless of a dehumanizing character. And the assessment involved at these fringes, I think, discloses that context can be crucial in terms of rendering an act cruel and human or degrading, when in some other circumstances it might actually be seen as benign or acceptable. Some examples from the European Court of Human Rights, I think, are instructive in this regard. In Yankov and Bulgaria, an inmate who had written critically about his treatment in prison had his hair shaved as punishment. This invasion of his bodily integrity with the aim of debasing him as punishment was considered to be degrading treatment. In Angela Georgiev and others against Bulgaria, the European Court of Human Rights clarified that recourse to force, to physical force by the police, which has not been made strictly necessary by the person's own conduct, is in principle in violation of Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights. And this finding was cited by the UN Torture Rapporteur in his 2017 report, establishing that unnecessary or excessive use of force extra-custodially, outside of custody, by police forces, will in principle violate the prohibition of torture and other cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment. The line drawn here is, as Jeremy Waldron puts it, or at least to paraphrase Jeremy Waldron, is one whereby law enforcement respect rather than mutilate the dignity and agency of those who are subject to the law. And in Bouillid against Belgium, in application of the Georgiev principle, the infliction of a single slap against powerless persons in police custody was found by the European Court of Human Rights to constitute degrading treatment, therefore to be conclusively unlawful. There are a lot more findings where these came from, but I'll, I'll leave it there and I'll take a step back and suggest that the specification of the wrongs encompassed in the prohibition of torture and ill treatment, I think places those of us who engage in it, in this kind of process of interpreting and applying and therefore specifying the contours of the wrongs, places us in the difficult position of navigating between certainty and restlessness. Of course, we want the red line between conclusively unlawful and potentially lawful conduct to be clear and firm, not porous. And there is a very rich and detailed body of standards and of jurisprudence that helps shape and delimit that line. 
But at the same time, we must allow for the possibility that what was once a collective or predominant myopia in respect of the character of certain treatment is corrected through an improved understanding of what it involves and entails. We also have to be, of course, alert to the evolution of all kinds of practices on the ground um, and, and to be able to catch them as potentially cruel, inhuman, degrading, or torturous. And I think the story of the determination of the contours of torture and other cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment is precisely one of restlessness and reappraisal. And we do have to embrace that. But there is a solid way of making sense of the uncertainty that remains. As the UN torture rapporteur put it in his latest report, states should always err on the side of caution, given that the act, omission, or situation that they might be contemplating is permissible only once its qualification as torture or ill treatment has been affirmatively excluded. The prohibition is under pressure, however, and not just by Stephen Greer. In his latest thematic report, Niels Melser suggests that the current situation is one where, despite a wealth of standards to make the eradication of torture and ill-treatment a reality, and therefore to reflect the promise as well as the stipulation of Article 5 of the Universal Declaration, such eradication has not materialized, the practice of torture and ill-treatment remain widespread around the world, and public tolerance for them seems to be on the rise again. And this, uh, the, the report suggests, can be traced chiefly to shortcomings in implementation, to backlash against the prohibition, to failings in accountability, and to patterns of disempowerment and discrimination. I want to build on this, but also provide a somewhat distinct narrative, speaking at all times in a personal capacity, by sketching and considering some classic challenges, some structural challenges, and some underexplored challenges. I don't dream of offering you a comprehensive account of prevailing challenges, but as I said, I really hope to shake up the focus a little bit. Speaking of classic challenges, we may broadly refer to the beast that is the sheer disregard for the prohibition of torture and its various facets in institutional settings, from police forces to immigration control, to prisons, to legislatures, to courts, and other norm appliers. This disregard takes various forms and permeates many levels of the state apparatus. It is probably the most prevalent challenge to the prohibition of torture and other ill treatment. And from this perspective, the prohibition has always been under pressure. Though there are peaks and troughs in regard for it across uh, states and across different elements of the state apparatus. In addition, we have the circumvention or attempts at circumventing the prohibition through various maneuvers. This kind of attempt at circumvention is probably best exemplified by the US torture memos, efforts to sanitize systematic torture through euphemistic terms such as enhanced interrogation techniques and through unduly narrow accounts of the prohibited wrongs. Today, circumvention is daily practiced in the various ways in which the letter and the spirit of the prohibition of refoulement is bypassed on our doorstep through pushbacks, pullbacks, punitively harsh reception or detention conditions and other mechanisms. 
In addition, we have the frequent reincar reincarnations and reemergences of disputation and backlash against the prohibition. And I've already considered one key dimension, I suppose, of the debate surrounding the ticking bomb scenario as instantiated in the Gefkin case. The ticking bomb scenario is the situation where some would proclaim that one ought to torture the terrorists to find out the whereabouts of a ticking bomb so as to save lives. The recent report of the UN Torture Rapporteur is firm on any attempts to justify torture or ill-treatment. It says torture and other ill-treatment along with slavery or genocide are absolutely prohibited, not because they never work towards whatever nefarious or seemingly uh, worthy end, but because they're entirely at odds with the fundamental respect for humanity on which the international legal order rests. But perhaps one of the biggest tricks, I think, pulled on us by the ticking bomb scenario, or as Henry Shu has put it, torture in dreamland, is to divert us. To divert us towards spending a great deal of energy contemplating an entirely implausible scenario in which an isolated <coughs> infliction of torture or ill treatment is justifiable, as though such a scenario exists and as though torture is containable which it isn't. And I think the ticking bomb scenario diverts us doubly. It diverts our energies towards refuting it, and by doing so, it diverts us to making the case that it is a diversion, that's what I'm doing right now, uh, from the real way in which torture works. And this makes it one classic challenge that I think we might need to redistribute some of our energies away from, because there are plenty of others that demand our attention. In addition, and I wasn't sure whether to put this in the classic challenges, the prohibition has increasingly been subject to allegations of undue expansionism. And these have come from various places. One example is the Conservative Party document on protecting human rights in the UK, which is now four years old. But I think these allegations of ex expansionism are perhaps um, best flavored or exemplified in the dissent uh, in Bouillet against Belgium, remember the judgment about single slaps in police custody being degrading treatment. The, uh, the finding of the Grand Chamber's majority attracted uh, a pretty vocal dissent. And the dissenting judges expressed concern that the majority's judgment may impose an unrealistic standard, which did not show proper appreciation of the difficulties that police may face in real life situations, and which might cause them to lose their temper. The majority's finding risked, according to the dissenting judges, being completely at odds with reality. I think for the dissenters, the, the frequent occurrence of such violence renders it pedestrian in some sense, and thus a basis for not finding it to be a breach of Article 3. But closer deliberation on the substance of this claim, I would say, but also an awareness of the history of human rights law, illustrate that the ubiquity or frequency of an act in itself does not vitiate that act's cruel, inhuman, or degrading character. And today, if our increasing awareness of gender-based and sexual violence has shown us anything, it is that it is both grave and pervasive. Now, of course, it is possible to have a meaningful disagreement and dialogue about how certain acts 
considered to be cruel and human degrading or torturous by, say, the European Court of Human Rights are not so. But I think that requires substantive relevant reasoning. <coughs> and I don't think that the dissenting judgments points are necessarily relevant reasoning. So I would say beware of under-reasoned claims of expansionism or of trivialization of the prohibition, which I think may mask or represent other kinds of concerns. In the Conservative Party's um, document, as another example, the allegations of expansionism are coupled with uh, a barely masked uh, attribution of all kinds of unpalatability and undesirability on the beneficiaries of the prohibition of torture uh, or other ill treatment. In terms of structural challenges, structural challenges, I think, are perhaps more towards the underexplored uh, uh, place in the spectrum. The recent report of the UN Torture Rapporteur highlights various aspects of legal systems and uh, the law's enforcement and their interaction with societal structures as operating to expose certain persons or persons in certain situations to a substanti substantially amplified risk or vulnerability to torture and ill treatment. Such an amplified risk often materializes for those who are systemically or systematically othered, whether that is through demonization, stigmatization, other forms of marginalization or disempowerment. And as an example, members of states' ever-shifting suspect communities face a particularly amplified risk of unlawful violence. Another example relates to the growing body of work unpacking the link between corruption and torture, which highlights the indelible links between torture and corruption at the heart of the policing of the urban poor, especially across many states in the world, whereby socioeconomically marginalized persons are embroiled in cycles of violence and criminalization and extortion. And structural problems entail that the perpetrators are not just rotten apples, they're not just a few bad apples. Often, torture and ill treatment operate within rotten orchards, and they require structural solutions which alleviate the conditions in which torture and ill treatment develop and thrive and are left unredressed. Now to underexplore challenges. There are many underexplored challenges, I think, for the prohibition, including subsets of the classic and structural challenges I've put on the table that warrant further engagement and examination. But for the purposes of giving a taster and recalibrating the focus, I want to touch on two. The first, briefly, is the threshold predicament. What I mean by the threshold predicament is that the preoccupation which I'm also guilty of, with the threshold between conclusively unlawful conduct and potentially lawful conduct, which is naturally what we turn to when we think of an absolute prohibition that trumps other um, uh, considerations, that this kind of focus sometimes cuts the conversation short. 
it narrows the scope of inquiry to is it, isn't it, and I think all too readily abandons that which isn't. And increasingly, our examination of these issues should, I think, seek affirmative ways, to bring up a term that was used in the recent report, affirmative ways of making sure that state action is not cruel, inhuman, degrading, or torturous. And this means paying closer attention to the continuum or the continuums which culminate in tortural treatment, as well as to circumstances and activities that give rise to a risk of torture or other ill treatment. The optional protocols preventive focus marks a turning point here, but I think a focus on prevention and protection should probably become better embedded across application, advocacy, and commentary on the anti-torture norm. The second challenge I want to raise, and I want to spend a bit more time on, is the challenge posed by the anti-impunity turn in human rights law, which I think raises dangers of coercive overreach, as well as of dilution of human rights standards, and pushes towards potentially a sort of tunnel vision that diverts us from meaningful, non-punitive measures for preventing and redressing torture and other cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment, and for protecting victims or potential victims. And I do want to dwell on these dangers a bit before closing. For me, the essence of the danger of coercive overreach in human rights law lies in equating circumstances in which the state is responsible for a violation of someone's human rights with circumstances which ought to attract individual criminal liability and thereby demanding that the state criminalize, prosecute and provide commensurate punishment against the individuals involved in such human rights violation. Now I think a tendency to conflate the human rights violation with criminal wrongs is discernible in many contexts and the European Court of Human Rights is just one example of an authoritative norm applier whose stipulations <coughs> and statements might be read as potentially pushing in this direction. So in this regard, while the European Court of Human Rights has clarified in some cases that the distinction, there is a distinction between criminal law liability and international law responsibility as concerns the convention, and that the court's task is to deal with international law responsibility of the state for human rights violations, sometimes it has then tended towards aligning the wrongs of torture and inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment, at least under Article 3, with wrongs that warrant criminal treatment. So, for example, in a case concerning the beating of protesters uh, taking shelter in a school, it said that for an investigation into allegations of torture or ill treatment to be effective in practice, it is a prerequisite that the state has enacted criminal law provisions penalizing practices that are contrary to Article 3, full stop. The danger of this is that it is capable of pushing states towards catching conduct which is not necessarily criminally culpable. Consider, for example, circumstances of diffuse responsibility resulting in degrading prison conditions or the good faith implementation of a procedurally flawed immigration policy. But more broadly, 
The weaponization of human rights in the mighty hands of the state, of the securitized carceral state, is something to be quite worried about. And in a seminal piece, Leora Lazarus warned against the reading of what were meant to be protective positive duties as coercive positive duties in human rights law, particularly in terms of their reception in states that are very preoccupied uh, with the politics of security. And this enablement and alliance, this unholy alliance with the carceral state, I think is one which is especially strikingly in tension with the prohibition of torturous frequent encounters with systemically and structurally cruel, inhuman, or degrading aspects of states' penal regimes. Equally, if not more worrying for a human rights type like myself, is the danger that a tendency to view human rights violations through a criminal lens might ultimately bring about a weakening of the stringent obligations that human rights impose on states. I think this has in fact transpired to some extent in relation to the right to life under Article 2 of the European Convention on Human Rights. Article 2 provides that the taking of life is lawful only where it results from the use of force which is no more than absolutely necessary in the pursuit of a limited set of legitimate aims. But this strict standard of absolute necessity has now been diluted through the merging of Article 2 violations with individual criminal wrongs into a test based on subjective, honest belief of the person wielding lethal force. There are various dimensions of the prohibition of torture and other ill treatment which I think are at risk of dilution through conflation. For example, instances of Article 3 violation through the unnecessary or excessive use of force could be subject to a criterion of honest belief as to such necessity. At risk are also violations involving diffuse causes without a clear set of individually or collectively uh, culpable actors, such as degrading prison conditions, as well as refoulement, instances of which may lack criminal intent. And in fact, John Finnis has recently made the case that the absence of essentially a criminal level of culpability in refoulement decisions means that refoulement should not be absolutely prohibited. And there is also the danger of the criminal lens diluting and undermining useful and indeed I think appropriate presumptions of fact that have been developed to overcome the expected difficulties in proving breaches of obligations in the context of human rights law, such as a shift in the burden of proof in respect of injuries sustained during detention. Finally, as Sam Moyne points out, the alternative to anti-impunity is not doing nothing, it is doing something else. Punishment has become increasingly central to positive obligations in human rights law in respect of fundamental rights such as the right to life and the right not to be tortured to the point that I think it seems to be treated as synonymous with justice, accountability, or even prevention and protection, or at least to overshadow or crowd out broader visions of justice, accountability, <coughs> and prevention. And in fact, not only might a focus on the criminal law and its enforcement divert attention from other ways, other laws, policies, and practices that undermine protection or that can increase protection, but criminal law enforcement itself can in some instances uh, undermine and obstruct protection. As an example, we might consider the problematic role of criminal law enforcement in the context of protecting victims of human trafficking. 
I'm going to have to wrap up. So the grandiose what is to be done question I have chosen to place on the last slides definitely overstates my goal. I think the challenges are many and complex and cannot be straightforwardly resolved. And a great deal of effort is still needed to identify and to call out the ways in which the prohibition is circumvented and flouted and to bring about positive change. But I also think that acknowledging how we might be diverted is key to addressing challenges. So a healthy redistribution of focus and energy is needed. So some energy should be uh, shifted, perhaps, to the task of illuminating the wrongs themselves instead of refuting the various variations of the ticking bomb scenario, to rescuing positive obligations by returning to and configuring reasonable measures towards effective protection and looking beyond criminalization, prosecution, and punishment, to identifying everyday torture and other cruel and human or degrading treatment <coughs> or punishment and uncovering their structural underpinnings and to transcending the focus on the threshold and unraveling the torture continuum and the ways in which the total dehumanization of torture is made possible, and to asking the question, does the law effectively protect us, but also them, and listening to others' answers in respect of that. More concretely, a change towards effective protection can, I think, lead to attention to a bigger frame of considerations in the context of positive duties especially, so, in respect of the question of whether the law adequately implements the prohibition, a wider set of laws should be seen as relevant. As the rapporteur highlights in his latest report, violence against women proliferates where women's right to property, divorce, or inheritance are restricted, or where they are prevented from obtaining custody of their children or leaving violent situations. In the discharge of the investigative duty in respect of credible allegations of ill treatment, the focus could be recast on non-recurrence and attention could be paid to wider dimensions of the acts or omissions that led up to torture or ill-treatment. For example, were the persons involved trained in forensic and non-coercive interviewing techniques? Moreover, the elaboration of positive obligations to protect from torture and ill-treatment should not neglect the significance of effective access to justice, the availability of refuges for victims, or the importance of firewalls between healthcare provision or police protection on the one hand and immigration control on the other. And in addition, meaningful change to the landscape of torture and ill treatment requires resource redistribution. As the recent report uh, of the torture rapporteur highlighted, efforts to alleviate the incidents of torture and ill-treatment, especially in context of systemic problems, require efforts to remedy the legal, structural, and socioeconomic conditions that may increase exposure to violence and abuse by state officials and non-state actors. I'm going to close by saying that in terms of what is to be done, I would suggest that we ought to engage discerningly with the key challenges for the prohibition of torture and other ill-treatment and that often this, this requires centering the periphery <coughs> from what we might perceive as the margins of the prohibition to those who are systematically and sometimes violently placed at the margins of concern. And in this process of refocusing, I think it is important to see the torture continuum as part of our societies, which need not be rare to be a serious wrong. And finally, thinking it is what it is, is a trap in this context. The continuum of torture throughout history is filled with behavior that was taken as a given and were at all times called upon 
to be on the right side of history by interrogating fixtures of the present and the past, while at the same time being aware that progress is not linear or inexorable. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.